right across the breadth of Australia, we've got a wild dog problem. And in recent years, well, going back some years, it has escalated. And what took note in my mind was that there are becoming great areas, good wool-producing areas, that could no longer run sheep because of wild dog predation. So we needed to put a plan together. You're listening to The Yarn, a podcast for the Australian wool industry. And this episode, we've teamed up with the National Wild Dog Action Plan. Whether you've got a wild dog problem or not, the National Wild Dog Action Plan, or the plan for ease of talking, is something every Australian producer should be aware of. It impacts and benefits all of Australia's livestock producers, but particularly those in the sheep and goat industries, where wild dogs can quickly decimate flocks, creating animal welfare issues along with significant financial losses. Greg Mifsud is the National Wild Dog Management Coordinator and has spent most of his career in feral species management. He explains further about what the plan is and, more importantly, what it does for producers. The National Wild Dog Action Plan is not about killing dogs at the grassroots level and, and unfortunately, some growers expect that. The National Plan provides that overall national strategy and policy framework that allows on-ground managers to continue. We took people from different places to other states to look at how variable the wild dog problem was. And so from, you know, the back blocks of Jindabyne and the Snowy Mountains where I'd worked previously to central western New South Wales to Charleville to the Flinders Ranges uh, north of Port Augusta to Esperance to Victoria, like vastly different environments, same pest animal but different approach to management and very impacts. And the wild dog issue becomes very insular. It's, it's what people know the issue to be based on what they experience locally. But to get that national perspective, we needed to take people outside of their backyards and look at what the problems were and how they were being managed elsewhere. And it generated such a, a level of respect between each of those that governments were more willing to adopt policies or, or approaches used in other states. For instance, the introduction of aerial baiting in South Australia was as a direct consequence of the landholders and the the state primary industries policy person going to Queensland and looking at how aerial baiting was done, came back and and developed up a policy around it. And by developing a National Wild Dog Action Plan, we got to firmly put in place an approach, uh, and it was signed up to by state, federal government, as well as industry and the key stakeholder groups. But we also do a hell of a lot of work behind the scenes, you know, continually defending the use of 1080 when we've got a whole range of lobby groups out there trying to see it banned. We're consistently working on new research. So we've done a lot of research into methods and control techniques such as the caned pest ejector, which is now registered for use. We're currently working on lethal trap devices and we're also looking at remote sensing so that when a trap goes off, we can be told when the, the dogs have been caught. All these things that need to be done in terms of managing public perception, but also increasing efficiency of the control techniques we've got. Managing feral species in Australia cannot be done without maintaining the general public's permission to undertake lethal control measures. Some urban Australians have raised concerns, with some groups vocally opposed to the concept of wild dog control. A key part of the National Wild Dog Action Plan is to address this, maintaining the public's permission and ensuring people are properly informed on wild dog control. One of the large aspects of my role is maintaining that community awareness. Through the National Wild Dog Action Plan, we've got our own Facebook site. We do a lot of communications. We've got a dedicated communications manager and an implementation manager. So we're consistently putting out 
stories and making people aware of one, the impacts of wild dogs, the ways in which we manage them, the impacts on community, individual landholders, and that, you know, we don't undertake wild dog management without taking all those considerations into effect. And trying to imp impress upon landholders that we need to continue best practice. So it's imperative that people use things like 1080 properly. They manage their risks. And look, through our wild dog management groups, that has been one of the really big outcomes, I think, of, of that best practice and that extension and engagement that we've been doing. Landholders, I think, now are far more aware of the risks of doing something inappropriately than they have ever been. And so that's really key to us. We can demonstrate to the public by promoting these wild dog management programs and what we do as being best practice and managing risk to the environment and to biodiversity, which then builds up the respect that they've got for what we do. It's been bottom-up, and I think that's been the success of the National Wild Dog Action Plan and wild dog management in general. Unlike other groups, which have often been top-down, government-driven, we've been a very bottom-up, industry-driven, stakeholder-needs-driven process. It's designed to manage the conflict involved in wild dogs, and wild dogs has got more conflict and emotion attached to it than yeah. any other pest species in the country. I mean, I was threatened to be shot at twice in the first week of the job at Jindabyne working for parks, and I didn't even got to the point about working on wild dog management. I was just threatened to be shot at because I had a, a live bird and a National Parks logo on my shirt. So, you know, we've had to come from that space in terms of yeah. getting everyone to the room and giving everyone the opportunity to have input. Mm -hmm and a say in what happens in terms of management. And that really changed the face of our approach. And we've followed that approach from the ground up. And I think now that's why industry is so strongly behind what we do. The plan is a highly collaborative and integrated approach that encourages state and federal government, research, industry and producers to work towards the same goal, which has resulted in some key achievements from the plan. They're all linked now. We've yep. got that network and that relationships established. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing the outcomes of that on the ground with continued access to products, ongoing support for feral animal management, particularly wild dogs. We're seeing investment in, in control programs through drought funding, cluster fencing. We've got aerial boating and ground boating programs, for instance, on the Queensland-New South Wales border that occur simultaneously now. That never used to happen. Queensland would do their ground boating one month. Two months later, New South Wales would do aerial boating and stop at the Queensland border. So the dogs would go from Queensland to New South Wales, eat New South Wales lamb, and then when the choppers went up there, they'd come back across the border and eat Queensland lamb. Yeah. You know, that's how silly it was. And this is, you know, an imaginary line on a map. There's no physical barrier. We've now got those operations working collectively. We're seeing the Queenslanders now aerial boating with helicopters at the same time as the New South Welshmen do. The choppers fly across the border along the same ridge lines, delivering baits on both sides. So it's, it's properly integrated management. That wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. So there, a lot of the things that are occurring on the ground are, are directly related in some way or another to that action plan that sits well above. We've heard from many producers about how the plan has helped them, in many cases actually saved their businesses, and there are also others who directly benefit from the plan, Australia's native wildlife. Mm -hmm. What role does wild dog management play in species protection? Uh, yeah, look, that's quite significant as well. Most state government agencies involved in public land management still struggle with funding to manage those lands properly, and particularly a lot of those threatened species programs. And where our wild dog management programs come into that is in, in quite often we're running joint programs with public land managers bordering private land. And so what we're seeing is a significant benefit to those threatened species that are under threat from predation by foxes, cats and dogs. 
And what we've seen in places, particularly you know, their largest marsupial carnivore we've got on the mainland is a, a, the tiger quoll, which is also possibly the most susceptible to 1080. It certainly was thought to be, but we can't actually hurt one with 1080 even when we know that they've eaten half a dozen baits. And as a consequence of that, our concentrated control programs on the perimeters of parks have seen quoll numbers, I wouldn't say explode, but certainly are probably 100 times more likely to find quolls now in parts of eastern Australia where aerial baiting occurs. So, yeah, we've seen a lot of benefits, particularly to quolls, but we've seen other benefits. The main non-target species we control with a a dog control program are foxes. So anything that's threatened by foxes gets a huge reprieve. We've seen brush-tailed rock wallabies, uh, various bandicoot species, smoky rats, all sorts of things that, that are susceptible to predation bounce back and respond positively after we do long-term wild dog control programs. Not only does feral species management reduce predation on our native wildlife, it also reduces direct competition for their food sources, which is highly significant, particularly for our carnivorous marsupials. They are all eating in the same weight size or weight range of prey species. Our native species don't occur in big numbers. Their ability to reproduce probably isn't as great as such something like cats. So, you know, you've got that opportunity there to, to really give them a good positive kick in the population if you can manage those predators quite well. As Greg has outlined, we've seen great outcomes from the plan for both primary producers and Australian wildlife, but there are still significant challenges moving forward. Uh, a large part of going forward, I think, will be the continued social licence mm-hmm. component of what we do. I think uh, anything that involves lethal control of an animal species is, is becoming more and more difficult to, to manage socially. Mm. Uh, I went to the United States two years ago to look at how they manage wolves and coyotes and the social pressure they receive there. Mm-hmm. And that comes from mostly just from New York and LA, mm-hmm. dictates their in whole, entire federal Department of Agriculture policy. So I do think that the action plan going forward, is, that's going to be a really key point. Mm-hmm. And maintaining the networks and relationships between all of our key stakeholders just gives us a much stronger united front to manage that. You know, things change. I might have been in this role for 13 years now and I think the issues consistently change, the challenges consistently change Mm -hmm. and the beauty of our bottom-up approach is that we've been able to manage that change and and adapt and adopt as we go forward. So I do think that there's going to be a fair bit of that um, with the plan going forward. Could we possibly see this plan going forward roll into more species? I certainly think so. Definitely with the draft that we've done now, there is a greater emphasis on multiple species approaches. And certainly on the ground, and and most of your grubbers are probably aware of this, that we do talk about dog control in the same sense as fox control and and managing, you know, in some cases, you know, managing rabbits as an important food source. So if they've been smacked by Khaleesi virus, then your dogs and foxes are going to be looking for something to eat, so it's a good time to bait. So we do talk about that locally but I guess going forward with the National Wildlife Action Plan we do have to make more relevance to other species and by including those other species I think we then become more acceptable. I think what we do with wild dogs then becomes more acceptable to a broader range of stakeholders because we're certainly looking at how wild dog control then affects fox control, pigs and so forth and I know from an environment department perspective you know linking those other species into what Mm -hmm. we do and using the current groups that we've got, 
to look at how we manage other pest species is seen as quite favourable. So, yeah, I think there's a bit of a, a, a space there for us to, to move into. Ian Evans is the Program Manager for Vertebrate Pests at Australian Wool Innovation. An important part of his no doubt challenging role is to take the National Wild Dog Action Plan and make it a reality on the ground. AWI has, uh, for probably nearly 11, 11 or 12 years, tasked itself with supporting wool growers and other producers in the area. We know we help people beyond our immediate levy payers, but helping community-based groups to address the challenge of wild dog predation in their area. Uh, We've done that largely through what we refer to as the on-ground part of the portfolio, and that's principally direct financial support for groups uh, for actions such as uh, baiting, trapping, training for both producers in the application of baits and and also in trapping, uh, and more recently in firearms usage. So this is the area where the I like to refer to it as this is where the rubber really hits the road. This is spending money on things and actions which directly assist producers to control wild dogs. Over the years, AWI has supported 194 community wild dog control groups, which has contributed to some great examples of large regions with successful wild dog control. Success means different things to different regions and different areas because the problem manifests itself a little bit differently. I mean, ultimately, with wild dogs, you finished up with dead or mauled sheep, and we're trying to mitigate that, but how you go about it and the resources that you need vary. An area or region that springs to mind immediately is the northeast and Gippsland in Victoria. It's mostly mountainous country. It's alpine or subalpine climate and geography. People might look at it on the map and say it's only a tiny little corner, but there are actually places in there that are quite isolated in terms of their distance out to major business centres, but also even from one another. You can be, as the crow flies, you can be 15 or 20 k's from a neighbour across a ridge or, or three and yet to drive there can be sort of 50 or 60 kilometre drive down to the end of the valley and back up the the next one. In that area with its difficult topography and its very mobile wild dog population, the capacity for people to think as a community and to act as a community through coordinating, particularly in coordinated baiting programs, will largely determine their success or otherwise. And the northeast and Gippsland of Victoria is a particularly good example where, whilst they haven't completely eliminated wild dog predation, they've certainly markedly reduced it. And there are producers in some of the groups within that region who now tell us that they haven't had a dog attack for uh, two and three years. Sure, there are still some who are still suffering from predation and I guess any predation is too much but we do see a really strong reduction in wild dog predation where we see groups that whilst they may not be physically at least in time close to one another work and think together very much as a community group in all of their control actions. Another example and in a very different environment is western New South Wales where to some extent the wild dog problem is more recent 
numbers have built up more in the last 10 years than they did probably in the 10 years prior to that. Their people are just physically a long way apart. They're, they're uh, large holdings, very often the next door neighbour is an hour's drive away. In those situations, what they've requested and what AWI has supported them in is with the provision of facilities, and I'm talking mainly drying racks and storage facilities, i.e. freezers, for wild dog baits, which have really assisted them in having the capacity to, A, participate in programmed, uh, the, the strategic baiting programs that are so critical to keeping the wild dog population down, but also to have the capacity to respond quickly with a, a very local baiting program and it may only be on their own station or in fact maybe only be in a couple of paddocks you know 10 20,000 acres where they see a dog or see evidence of dog attacks so success for the groups looks quite different I'm quite happy with the response and the results that we've achieved in those areas yes there's still some way to go mm-hmm. uh, and we can always provide some more but uh, resources permitting will continue to do that. You are just talking about then you need different landholders from across all the areas to actually have a significant impact in controlling the wild dogs. So what else are the key ingredients in a successful wild dog group long term? I think the single greatest, uh, not really an issue, the single greatest feature of a successful program is about leadership. There are two kinds of leadership that I can see. One is from within the group. So this is someone, a local, a landholder, a, a local community member. We've got a case, I think this is one in Queensland, where the leader of the wild dog group is actually one of the merchants in town. So it's just people from within the community. But they also, because in the control of these pests where we're using lethal control... The groups have to work closely with the regulatory bodies in each state. And one of the best, and it's a quite new example, is the recognised biosecurity groups in Western Australia. The recognised biosecurity groups, or RBGs in Western Australia, enables landholders to raise a declared pest rate in their local area, allowing them to get matching funding from the state government to operate over the long term. The groups are much, much bigger in Western Australia but they are becoming, have become, relatively effective in achieving the control of pest animals and they also have responsibility for pest weeds in Western Australia. They're doing that through having assistance with the establishment of the RBG structure, the ongoing functions of that and what AWI's involvement there has been able to do is actually provide some assistance to help them transition from the formerly entirely state government dependent type organisation to a much more grower directed and supported organisation. That's an example of the workings of a successful group. Long term these groups will be self-sustaining and effective in their control of pest animals but also in the Western Australian case of pest weeds. Does a lot of the RBG groups and the strategy behind you know, using growers, using researchers and everyone to establish successful programs, 
does that way of thinking stem down from the National Wild Dog Action Plan itself, do you believe? Absolutely. The National Wild Dog Action Plan acts as a, without wishing to sort of quote corny cliches, but it really is a call to arms. It's the kind of what an individual or a group or a, a number of groups can look to for a, a model of what to do and how to do it in terms of dealing with pest animal problems. Uh, not just wild dogs, other pest animals can be dealt with because it's a way of doing things or a mode of operation that's applicable across species. And that's an important role for the National Wild Dog Action Plan. And finally, Ian, let's turn to practical advice for producers about how they can get involved and even assist in their communities with predator control. For the average producer, the first step is to find out who your local pest animal or weed coordinator is, whether they're AWI funded, which many of them are, or as there are emerging now some other coordinators, pest coordinators, who are funded from other sources. So find out who your local coordinator is. Through them, find out, is there a group in your area? If there is, get involved. Um, It's like being part of a local bushfire brigade or the local Parents and Citizens Association of your school. You can make your contribution to the local community that way. Get involved with them, contribute to them. Once you know the ropes, the thing I would urge everyone to think about is taking your turn in some of the leadership roles because one of the things we see in groups is that usually the people who start them are in many cases the best leaders or at least they're the first ones to put their hand up but we burn those leaders out if we leave them there for too long so when you feel comfortable step up give them a hand ultimately maybe take on that role and make your contribution because one of the most important things for community-based groups and this is based on the assumption that no one's getting paid for any of their time I think that's nearly a given with all of these things. Do your bit because you will well and truly be repaid for your effort in doing that by setting an example which other people will follow and really uh, ensuring the long-term sustainability of that group. The hard work, there's no doubt that the hard work is done by the, and particularly with wild dogs, the hard work is done by the people who have to deal with the first wave because invariably... We don't see the first wave coming and it kind of hits us a little bit like a tsunami and it can be extremely overwhelming in some cases. Once we get on top of the problem, it's then absolutely vital that we maintain the pressure to keep the population down to very, very low levels, certainly to the level where predation is at zero or as close to zero as we can absolutely maintain it because... When we start losing $200 a head sheep, it doesn't take very long for that to become an extremely expensive exercise. There are also a few tools such as feral scan and wild dog scan, which producers can use to alert authorities that wild dogs are on the loose. Yeah, wild dog scan, which is one of the suite of programs that sits under feral scan. There's also feral pig scan and there's various other pest animal scans in there. But wild dog scan be used to not only alert local authorities but probably I think more importantly can alert your neighbours that 
hey, I've trapped a wild dog on the southwest corner paddock, so if it lets your group know, all of a sudden you can have all of those extra eyes looking at the ground and looking around in that region, and that's really important for follow-up. Now, you may have trapped one, but was that one of a pair, or was it in fact one of a litter of pups that have just left mum and are out hungry looking for a meal? Jeff Power is a wool grower from Oruru in South Australia. With decades of experience of working on the land, Jeff gives a producer's insight into why Australia needed the National Wild Dog Action Plan. Right across the breadth of Australia, we've got a wild dog problem. And in recent years, well, going back some years, it has escalated. And what took note in my mind was that there are becoming great areas, good wool-producing areas, that could no longer run sheep because of wild dog predation. So we needed to put a plan together. So we did that with the help of Wool Producers Australia, a state and federal governments, uh, AWI, and agitators such as me. We created a plan and uh, it's been a great achievement. It's one of the few initiatives that's grown out of industry, for industry, and uh, it's brought government, researchers and industry together in a common cause. So what did wild dog management look like in South Australia and, you know, for you locally before the plan was put in place? Well, it was ad hoc. People were um, periodically baiting. Uh, some landholders knew the art of trapping, but, but it, was, it was very ad hoc. It wasn't happening on, on a coordinated basis. So what the National Wild Dog Action Plan did for South Australia was it gave us the opportunity to create a South Australian plan, which was linked to the national plan, and from there, we were able to uh, leverage uh, funding from government to uh, create baiting programs and create a pool of trappers that would go out and trap cunning dogs that wouldn't take baits and also instruct landholders in the art of trapping. So we, we increased the, the whole base of wild dog control right across the state. We also um, have a, a dog fence that's uh, 2,150 kilometres long the majority of that fence is well over 100 years old and uh, once again through our local plan which is linked to the uh, national plan we were able to um, obtain funding from the federal government, state government and industry to replace that old fence which we reckon will be around 1600 kilometres. So what do you see as the plan's greatest benefits like you compare to where you were before it was implemented and after? We've got a coordinated approach and I believe in the long term landholders will be able to run sheep again which will have a huge benefit for our regions that will uh, help main streets because it will create employment through with shearing teams coming through, employment of people working on properties and so it's going to be good for our regions so it's going to have social benefits as well as economic benefits. So enterprise choice in your particular region around Uru, it's going to influence that heavily as well. Yeah, no, enterprise choice is a huge thing. There are vast areas of South Australia that are really uh, suited to merino sheep production. It's a great wool producing area and that will give people a choice, enterprise choice, to go back into sheep. Which is fantastic. (laughs) What would you like or what do you hope to see more of in the predator control space in the future? We need a whole landscape approach. Dogs, they don't respect boundaries, so... Yeah, a whole whole landscape approach, you know, coordination and uh, cooperation between 
not just landholders, but across jurisdictions. You know, we've got to understand that, uh, rightly so, every state's got different legislation, but there are things that we can do together. For example, baiting programs. Uh, we can bait, say, in the northeast of South Australia roughly at the same time as they do in the Western Division of New South Wales, and that has a huge impact on, on dog predation. And finally, have you seen any biodiversity oh, benefits? Yeah. yeah, look, the other thing about the National Wild Dog Action Plan and, and how it's linked to the state plans is that there are great biodiversity benefits uh, coming forth by protecting uh, vulnerable and endangered species. We have done a lot of work in South Australia uh, in the Flinders Ranges with quolls, so they were endangered. They, they were gone years ago, but we've reintroduced them. We've done a lot of baiting. We've got rid of the foxes, and, and they're doing quite well. And the other big one is the uh, yellow-footed uh, rock wallaby, which is a very small marsupial. Yeah, foxes and dogs decimated their populations, and now we're seeing them bounce back. And we've actually got a program called Bounce Back that protects native species. So... Look, I think that's most important that we as industry work alongside people and environment to work together to ensure that our vulnerable species are protected as well as our sheep and cattle. I think it's fantastic, especially for painting a picture with the general public about why we do this, not just to help the mental, social and economic status of producers but also the biodiversity and wildlife too. Yeah, biodiversity, look, it's important. What we do has got to be sustainable and and we've got to have a sustainable growth of wildlife as well. And, look, it doesn't matter who you are these days, everybody's a tourist sometime. Yeah, they like to see sheep and cattle out in the paddock, but they also like to see our wildlife. So we've got to do things in a sustainable, ethical manner. And we're very proud of that in the Flinders Ranges. For more information on wild dogs and other feral pests in Australia, visit www.pestsmart.org.au. And from PestSmart, you can get onto resources like Feral Scan, where you can download the app and directly help map the distribution of feral animals in your area and the damage they cause. You can also visit AWI's dedicated pest animals hub on wool.com for more information on feral pest research programs and also the contact details of AWI funded wild dog coordinators in each state. That's all from The Yarn for this episode. We love your feedback and questions at theyarnatwool.com. AWI is on Facebook, on Twitter at Wool Innovation and Instagram at Beyond the Bale. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ellie Bigwood and I'll see you soon for another yarn. Yeah.